Jesus is praying for us here. Every future generation of Christians that came after the apostles is in this prayer, including us. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 76th episode of Working with the Word. Today, we wrap up our conversations about Jesus' conference with the apostles in John 13 through 17. John 17 is an extraordinary chapter in our Bibles due to the fact it is one of the few recorded prayers of Jesus we have, and the longest at that. We'll get to this amazing prayer in just a moment, but we feel it's important to stress that without the foundation laid in the previous few chapters, this prayer would not make as much sense to us as it does having that information. So along with our regular encouragement to do some observation in this chapter before joining us for some interpretation and application work, you can either do this by reading John 17 on your own, or you can listen to me read it in episode 68 from about the 17 minute 49 second mark to the 20 minute 34 second mark. We would also encourage you to make sure you've tuned into our material covering John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. So let's go ahead and get into this chapter and talking about this prayer. Uh, if you're using a Bible with headings, you've probably got a very clear three-part outline, which is a favorite of a lot of teachers and preachers. That's pretty much the structure we're going to follow today, starting with these first few verses where Jesus prays for himself. Before we get into the prayer itself, just a couple of things to overview for this chapter. One of the things that I think it's important for us to understand is that Jesus is praying this prayer out loud. He's not praying this silently just to himself, but he is openly praying in the presence of his disciples so that they can hear. And it's very similar to like in chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, when Jesus is praying at Lazarus's tomb and he prays to the Father out loud so that the bystanders can understand that the Father is doing this and that they're together. In a very similar way, Jesus is praying this prayer out loud. And it's just incredible to imagine Hearing Jesus pray this with the emotion and with the expression and the heart and the passion and the devotion to the Father that he would have certainly prayed this. And the other thing to mention is, I think, Jeff, you mentioned this at the beginning, that we like the Christian Standard Bible's paragraph headings. How this is structured and organized is really simple. Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 through 5. Jesus prays for his disciples, 6 through 19. And then Jesus prays for all believers, including us. And so I'm taking the first uh, section here, Jesus praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. To me, that sounds really weird to to hear Jesus praying for himself because Jesus didn't do anything for himself. He didn't do anything with selfish gain or motive. But what, what Jesus is doing here is he's praying for himself with a mind to completing God's work, God's plan. So what is he asking for for himself? Well, two times... In verses 1 and verse 5, he says, glorify me, glorify your son or glorify me. And that kind of bookends the the section here. What does he mean by that? I think it's helpful to connect that to some of the things we've already seen in the Gospel of John to help us see Jesus is not praying that God would just make him look good. (laughs) Just, Just make me look good in front of everybody else. But number one, he's praying for his... He's praying in preparation for his death. Uh, Jesus has already made the point in chapter 12 that his hour has come. In chapter 12, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
but that is why I came to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. And so as he thinks about preparing for his death, him dying is going to glorify the Father, and it's going to bring honor to him. And also in chapter 13, when Jesus hands the morsel to Judas, and Judas leaves to go make preparations to betray Jesus, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. And so all that to say that Jesus is praying for the Father's glory. He's praying for his own glory as he approaches his death. Now, nothing about the cross looks pretty. It doesn't look good, but it will honor God. And I think that's really what Jesus is trying to focus on here. Praying in preparation Mm -hmm. for his death but also praying in preparation for what comes after his death, and specifically his exaltation. And I say that because in verse 5, he says, Glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. And I think that is an implication of his deity, that he was with God in the beginning. You know, we read in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then in verse 2, again, he says, he was in the beginning with God. And so he's right. praying that he will be restored to his, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, but he's praying for restoration of his heavenly glory at the Father's side. Again, that's a little bit hard for us to understand. We do need to realize that he never ceased being God. He never gave up his deity He was fully divine while he was in the flesh. But at the same time, while he was on the earth, he was limited. He didn't have that heavenly glory. He left that. Uh, He didn't leave his deity, but he left the Father's side to come to this world. And so he's praying Mm -hmm. for his exaltation after the cross that he would be restored to that. So I think the main point we need to take from this is that Jesus is praying for the plan to be completed, that he would finish the work he came to do, that he would see it all the way through, that he would endure the cross, that he would be exalted in heaven as king. And what's interesting is that God answers this prayer. God answers this. He exalts Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about how he came to earth. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. In verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in verse 9, For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And so God answered this prayer, and through the cross and through the resurrection and through the exaltation, he glorified Jesus, and the Father himself was glorified through this. And so that's what I see in these first five verses. But like we mentioned, going from praying for himself, Jesus is praying for, as some versions or some headings will say, his disciples, that being pretty specifically, it seems, talking about the 11 apostles who he's been talking with for the previous few chapters. And this major thought growing through about this idea of protecting them and sanctifying them, and this this idea that they are distinct from the world and need to be protected in the work that they're going to do and set apart or sanctified for the work that they do. Uh, Jesus is praying here for the work that his apostles will do once he is gone and how he has told and showed them that he has come from the Father to do the Father's work. And now, or at least very soon, we might say, 
It's going to be their job to start the father's work that he has already planned for them. Not that I almost phrase this as they're continuing Jesus's work, but they're not really continuing in the same thing that, you know, Jesus is fulfilling the law and they're doing similar things, but they're doing the work that God mm-hmm. has expected them to do as part of his plan and all of right. that. And we see that recorded for us in the book of Acts. We see what the apostles will do in going out and spreading the gospel. A lot of the things that Jesus tells them at the end of Luke or the end of John, the end of Matthew, continue up right there in Acts chapter 1. But as they do this work, Jesus is going to be praying about the fact that they are distinct from the world. A big part of this prayer is the fact that they are distinct from the world, which kind of makes sense. But we've seen that throughout John's teaching, this thought that they're going to be within the world, they're going to be you know, living in the world, but they're going to be just different and separate from the world. In John chapter 3, verse 18 through 21, we see some of that language. We see that throughout this section here, this thought like we see maybe in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Verses before this, we see something like verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's this distinction between the apostles and while they may be going out into the certain field, that they're going to be different from the world. But along with that is this fact that they're going to be needing protection. And so Jesus prays for their protection, that not meaning necessarily that they're going to have a lack of hardships. When you do read the book Mm -hmm. of Acts, you see that for the apostles. You see that in Acts chapter 4. Some of the apostles are arrested and they are released from prison. Uh, Times later, they're released from prison when they're beaten. But here they're released from prison and the church prays together not for a removal of the difficulty of the persecution. They pray for boldness to continue endure through that. Protection does not mean a lack of hardships in the fact that people will just face physical persecution. Some people are going to die. Stephen dies in Acts chapter 7. James the apostle, the brother of John, dies in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. This protection seems to be very much focused on the spiritual protection that's talked there in verse 15 of John 17. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, that you may protect them from the evil one. In verses before, in verse 12, Jesus says, While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus has been protecting his disciples and spending his time with them and keeping them from the evil one. We have recorded in one of the other gospels how he speaks to Peter and says, I've been praying for you that Satan will not sift you like wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm probably jumping out of the CSB for that quotation because it's been put in some other translation in my mind from that way. But this protection is focused on that spiritual protection besides Judas, who has been lost in order to fulfill the scriptures that's talked about in John chapter 12 or John chapter 13, like we mentioned a little while ago, or kind of a, a fulfillment of Psalm 41 and verse 9. And so he's praying for their protection, protect them as they're doing this work in the world. The world's going to hate them, protect them, especially from the the attacks of the evil one. Related to that, though, is this thought that they're going to be sanctified or their sanctification. This fact that they're being set apart or made holy by the truth of the word of God. Verse 17 might be a familiar passage to us, just where Jesus prays for his apostles and saying, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's a very foundational part about our understanding of Scripture, that God's Word is true and without error and without falsehood or false teaching. But truth is going to be needed 
by the apostles and is going to help them to set them apart or sanctify them for the work that they do, not only to combat false teaching as that arises in the days to come, but to show the foundation of the faith believers have in God comes without falsehood, without any type of error or separation within any of that. So Jesus is looking out for his apostles here and the work that they're going to be doing once he leaves. But even beyond that, we see Jesus praying for all the believers. I think before that, we have some uh, something else to say. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how much was resting on the apostles' shoulders at, in Jesus' absence. I mean, he didn't choose perfect men because there were no perfect men. There are no perfect men. But he chose right. men of sincerity and courage and men who would be devoted to the truth and would not give up their belief and their conviction in Jesus. And, and so that kind of helps us understand the importance of his prayer here. He's praying that these men will complete that work because that's the future of the gospel right there, is these, these men, his core, I guess. And so just thinking mm-hmm. about their protection is really, really important. And so like you mentioned, he, he doesn't just end the prayer there, but I think it's really uh, neat that in verse 20, beginning there, he prays for all future disciples. In verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And so again, there's that, a lot is resting on their shoulders because without them, really, you and I wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be reading these words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we wouldn't uh, even have a belief in Jesus because so much rests on them. Right. And so Jesus is praying for us here. That Again, that's just, for, for me, that's a mind-boggling thing that every future generation of Christians that came after the apostles is in this prayer, including us, almost 2,000 years later. And specifically, he's praying two things for us. In verses 20 to 23, he's praying that we may be one. In my my Bible here, I've, I've underlined that word one. It's found four times here. In verse 20, may they all be one. That's just only one of those times. Jesus is praying mm-hmm. for unity here. And there's another phrase that keeps coming up. In me, in you, in us. Verse 21 also, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Kind of this more, you know, tongue twistery kind of stuff that Jesus <laughs> has been using in this, this section. I think those phrases re- convey this idea of relationship, yeah, um, unity and relationship. And so kind of taking those two ideas together, Jesus is praying that we as Christians today will have a unified relationship in Christ just like Jesus and the Father have a unified relationship together as one. Jesus bases his plea for unity on the fact that he and the Father are one. And this is one of those places where I think we can go to and see that the teaching of, if we wanted to use the the word Trinity or the idea of a triune God, that that this is important. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when we talk about the Trinity, we kind of talk about it as if it's just some theological thing that doesn't really matter. Uh, Certainly, we can't fully wrap our minds around it, but I think it has some really practical implications. If the Father and the Son are unified in heart and purpose and mind, being one God but separate in persons, that has profound implications for our relationships as Christians together. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And I don't plan on talking about the Trinity anymore here. (laughs) Um, If you have something to jump in here and say about the Trinity, you can, but, but it's just... It's a really practical thing he's talking about here. 
unity and relationship. Right. And this unity is seen in two ways. First of all, it's seen in the unity that we have in the truth of the gospel. In verse 17, again, you mentioned this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The thing that's going to set Christians and these disciples apart from anybody else is their commitment to Jesus' truth and the gospel. That, that's, what, that's the boundary that, that separates them from every, everyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and we see that in the early church. We see that in Paul's letters. I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where several ones are mentioned. There is one God. There is one Lord. There is one baptism. There is one faith. Uh, doctrine matters because it's, it's what sets us apart. It's what it serves as the foundation for our unity. And so that unity can be only expressed in unity of belief, unity of, of doctrine. And so mm-hmm. that's one way, but that's not the only way. We can't emphasize that only to the exclusion of something else Jesus has emphasized very often in this section, that unity is seen in serving one another in love. I mean, if we haven't emphasized that enough in chapters 13 through 17 or 16, we haven't done our job well (laughs) because Jesus has constantly told the disciples, you guys need to love each other. Love each other to the extent that I've loved you. Wash each other's feet. Lay down your life for each other. Love each other as I have loved you. And so just like doctrine matters, our relationships matter. And if we're not serving each other as we ought to, then we're not fulfilling this unified relationship in Christ. And so jumping to just a point of application for us, as we think about Jesus's prayer for us today to be unified, are we fulfilling that desire? Are we fulfilling what Jesus wants in our local churches? Are we contributing to fracture and division either by false teaching or by contention and envy and strife? I mean, we've seen some of that the last couple of years through COVID, deciding how we're going to work through that. Um, but just not, not just COVID, but the last couple of thousands of years, there has been division and fracture and contention within Christianity. Right. And it should not be that way. That's not Jesus's desire. So is his desire our desire? Are we seeking to discern and obey the truth together? Are we seeking unity through love as Christ wants? That's what Jesus wants for us here in this prayer. And so he's praying for unity. And then there's a second thing, beginning in verse 24. Verse 20, just, just putting it in Jesus' words. He prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Jesus prays that we would be with him forever. And not just his apostles here, but us today, that we would be with him and again, that's incredible to, to see that that's on his mind before he goes to the cross, because ultimately that's what he accomplished on the cross. That's what he made possible on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin so we can be reconciled with him and not just reconciled here on earth, but in heaven. We could be with him uh, eternally in perfect fellowship. And so he prays that we would be with him so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. And so when we are with him, that's our ultimate goal. And we will see his glory. We will reflect his glory. And that's what Jesus wanted more than anything. 
and again, jumping to a point of application, is that what we want more than anything? You know, there's a lot of things in this world that can distract us, things that can pull us away, things that can catch our attention. But before the cross, Jesus prayed that we would be with him. And I think that also kind of reminds us of what he said in chapter 14 to his disciples. Chapter 14, verse 3, he's talking about preparing a place for them. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. That's what heaven's about. It's not about having a mansion. It's not about walking on streets of gold. It's not about driving a Lamborghini. (laughs) Those things are nothing in comparison with being with the, the Father and being with our Lord in heaven. And so, again, it's just amazing to think about Jesus praying for us even then, praying for these things for us today. So what can we take away as our big so what from this prayer, from this amazing prayer that we see not long before Jesus is arrested here in John's account. We go back to the beginning of this prayer and we look at Jesus praying for himself and seeing some of those things about his authority and his divinity. Something Jesus says in verse 2 and verse 3, you gave him authority over all flesh. He may give eternal life to everyone that you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent. Jesus Christ. The fact that they would come to know God and to know Jesus, that's really the foundation of what we look for in finding eternal life, is that we would come to know God and really be with him. Uh, I think that when we were making notes for this episode, it reminded us of Mark Roberts' illustration that he used when we had him on a while ago to talk about daily Bible reading. And reading our Bibles to know God. And he used that illustration of, mm-hmm. I might know someone through you know, a baseball card about them, but I don't actually know that guy. I might know God through pages of my Bible, but I don't actually know him. John's written this gospel so that we would believe. He says in verse 30 and verse 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, by believing you may have life in his name. I think that's a very similar statement that Jesus makes, that we would find that eternal life and have that eternal life by knowing God and knowing Christ. So that's what we want to take away from this section to see just our our need to know God and our need to know Jesus if we want that gift of eternal life. And so our challenge, we wanted to make our challenge something relatable to prayer. Because our challenge, we, we often want to make it something that's really workable, something that's really you can put into practice. And so we just encourage you, uh, I thought about saying, <laughs> pray like Jesus, but that's yeah. very intimidating and very open-ended. But instead, we wanted to say that pray for some of the things that Jesus prays for. Pray for God to guard us in the world. As he says about his disciples, they are not of the world the world doesn't define them, but they are in the world, and they've got an enemy in the world, in particular Satan. So pray for God to guard us in the world, pray for us to be unified in truth and love, and pray that that we will be with him forever, because again, that's our ultimate goal. How can you pray these kinds of things like Jesus did? And I think as we try to exercise that, as we try to focus on those things in our prayers, we will find our prayers becoming more spiritually focused, 
and more focused on the things that Jesus would want us to pray for. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. We'll be moving into our final section of John and the period of consummation where everything comes together in the great climax of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Be on the lookout for our observation of John 18 through 21 very soon. Until then, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible or difficult passages you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Thank you.